It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. I'm going to guess that waking up this morning, you're probably thinking a lot about New Hampshire, where Donald Trump just won again. This was not a surprise. Trump's poll numbers have been robust for weeks. And over the last few days, he's been basking in his assumed dominance. The Washington Post's Isaac Arnsdorf has been following Trump around. You tweeted out this picture of Trump with his tongue out, looking incredibly relaxed and sort of silly. You said it captured the campaign's current mood. Yeah, that was from when he visited his volunteers at the New Hampshire headquarters, and it was right after DeSantis was dropping out. And, you know, you just sort of see on his face, like, (laughs) he's walking in the conquering hero. I mean, sit with me while I rewind the clock for a second. In December 2022, so just over a year ago, New York Magazine published a story titled Donald Trump's Sad, Lonely Run for Re-Election. The cover photo is basically the complete opposite of the photo you've just described. It was Trump alone at a table at Mar-a-Lago, looking pretty down. Are you surprised by this turnaround of sorts? The campaign is surprised. It was not at all clear that this was the way it was going to go when he launched this campaign in a really unusual moment of political weakness. It's tough to remember this time now, but I'll do my best to remind you. In the wake of the 2022 midterms, elections in which Donald Trump's favored candidates lost their races for the most part, some Republicans seemed eager to move on. Virginia's lieutenant governor went on Fox Business and said, You know, the voters have spoken, and they have said that they want a different leader. Senator John Thune of South Dakota said, you can't have a party that is built around one person's personality. And this was former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. I mean, I think Trump's kind of a drag on our ticket. I think think Donald Trump um, gives us problems politically. It's funny. I think I would have said back then, like, oh, he's about to be indicted. This is going to be a huge problem for his candidacy. Is that how it's worked out? Well, it could be in the general. We don't know yet. But as far as the primary, it was definitely the opposite. It had the effect of pressuring Republicans to come to his defense, of circling the wagons around him. A former trial lawyer for the Department of Justice recently told the outlet The Hill that every time Trump goes into a courtroom, he always comes out with more support. Does that ring true to you? I mean, it's probably a little bit hyperbolic. I think what you <laughs> what you could definitely say is that every time he goes into a courtroom, he makes headlines. In 2024, when the candidate is Donald Trump, a court appearance can be a campaign stop that is even more effective at getting their message out than a traditional rally. Today on the show, after New Hampshire, 
Trump's path to the Republican nomination seems clear. Indictments be damned. How did one of his greatest liabilities become a campaign superpower? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, a couple days ago, we did a show about the implosion of Ron DeSantis's campaign. And one of the things that my guest, Ben Mathis-Lilly, highlighted was the fact that Donald Trump actually seemed to become the leading Republican nominee just as his legal troubles got serious. So I'm wondering if we can go back in time to last spring to just lay out how Trump's campaign and Trump's legal liability have been knitted together. Like Trump was first indicted in Manhattan in early April. There weren't any cameras in the courtroom, but that didn't mean he didn't make a show out of it. Do you remember this moment? And what were you thinking back then? Yeah, you can look at the tracking polls and there's a very clear inflection point right around April 1st. The indictments obviously had a huge amount to do with that. The campaign used that moment to pressure Republicans to support Trump, to come to Trump's defense, and then very quickly turned those into endorsements, such that by the end of the month, a lot of Republicans were calling his nomination inevitable. Hmm. A really telling moment was DeSantis's initial reaction to that first indictment, which had to do with the hush money payments to uh, the adult film actress Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election, was to sort of distance himself or kind of make an underhanded swipe at the underlying tawdry details of that case. And he very quickly, uh, he got a lot of blowback to that and walked it back and then reversed himself and talked about how he wasn't going to participate in extraditing Trump to New York as the governor of Florida. And that really captures how throughout the whole primary, none of the challengers to Trump ever found a way of attacking him that didn't backfire with Republicans, most of whom still really like him. In the months since that first indictment that the district attorney in New York City brought, Trump's been in and out of a lot of courthouses. Could you just give a quick scan of the other cases he's involved with across the country? Yeah, I'm going to try to do it in one breath, okay? (laughs) You like a challenge. Okay, so we mentioned the one in New York. So then there are two federal cases brought by the special counsel, Jack Smith. There's one in Florida having to do with his alleged mishandling of classified documents that he took from the White House after leaving office. Then there is the case in D.C. about his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Uh, But I did take a breath. But there's also the Fulton County district attorney uh, has another election interference case. And then there are the civil cases, like he's currently in court dealing with E. Jean Carroll and defamation. He's just gotten out of a case with the New York State Attorney General. Right. There's the 
New York civil trial about business fraud. That trial has wrapped up and we're waiting for a ruling. And then you mentioned the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, which is the second time around because uh, he was already found liable for having sexually abused and defamed her. Talk to me about the evolution of Trump as a courtroom character. Like, did he always seem to recognize the power of being a candidate defendant? So it's interesting to me, if you go back before he was a politician and look at how he did depositions, it was not the Trump that we see on TV. He like actually did the deposition the way you're supposed to do the deposition, where you gave short answers, where you only answer the question that was asked and you don't give up anything. Now, do you feel that your attention to details has kept your memory sharp? No, my memory's good. Well, you've described it as being better than good, right? Yeah, it's good. It's safe. I have a good memory. Well, you've described it as being one of the all-time great memories, right? I have a good memory. What case was this? It might have been Trump University. Um, It might have been the fraud claim against his for-profit business. Yeah, yeah. And I was struck by when the deposition came out in the E. Jean Carroll case the first time, that was a deposition that was political. It was clearly meant for public consumption. And and you know it's you know it's not true too. You're a political operative also. You're disca- you're a disgrace. But she's accusing me and so are you of rape and it never took place. He was being very combative. He was, you know, he was doing his his campaign talking points. You know, the campaign and the legal defense have merged. Yeah, it struck me that in June after he got indicted in Georgia and there was a mugshot taken of him, he actually went on Truth Social, his social media platform, to sell T-shirts that had his mugshot on them. The mugshot merch specifically is like next level. So even before there was the real mugshot, you know, people were making mugshot magnets and T-shirts and hats and I always had to laugh because the height on the chart behind him always varied. (laughs) Uh, But then once the real mugshot came out, that has really been the icon of this campaign. In the last little bit, I was struck by one 24-hour period of campaigning in particular. Because less than 12 hours after Trump celebrated a decisive victory in the Iowa caucuses, he was back in New York City to be sitting in the chair for the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. And he had skipped appearing at the E. Jean Carroll trial the first time around. But then all of a sudden, there he was, front and center, glowering at the jury. Right. So another instance of him leaning into this where he didn't, you know, he didn't have to be there. So leaning into that and and a preview of things to come, you know, toggling back and forth, uh, turning around and flying from the campaign trail to the courtroom again, all in service of making them one and the same. I know you're spending a lot of time on the ground in early primary states. How is all this playing with potential voters? Like when they see like, okay, he's not really here. He seems to be in court. What do they make of it? Well, I haven't seen any indication that he's paid any political price for that. And Republican voters I talk to will say that that's, you know, that's not his fault. That's what the prosecutors are trying to do is take him off the campaign. So they definitely don't hold that against him. You definitely talk to Trump supporters who want to support him, not in spite of, but because of the prosecutions. And then you also talk to Republicans 
who do have those misgivings about whether they want their nominee to be someone who's indicted or maybe even convicted um, and whether that's going to make it harder for him to win in November. How does Trump talk about his indictments when he's on the trail, when he does show up? Trump has made the indictments core to his message, portraying himself and his supporters as victims. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. They want you silent. And I am the only one that can save this nation because you know they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, and I just happen to be standing in their way and I will never be moving. It's like I'm sacrificing myself for you. Does that resonate with voters? Yeah, it really does. And I think that's confusing to people outside the movement. What it means in the movement is that if you believe that these are all made up politicized charges, and they can do that to Trump with all his power and resources, then what chance do the rest of us have? And for people who do feel like the system is stacked against them, that's very powerful. We'll be back after a quick break. So far, Donald Trump is getting to choose whether or not he shows up for court because only his civil cases have gone to trial. Once his criminal cases get underway, his attendance will no longer be optional. But it's unclear if any or all of those cases are going to make it to court before Americans make it to the ballot box. Take Trump's election interference case. It's one of two that federal prosecutor Jack Smith is working on. It's scheduled to start right before Super Tuesday. But that is on hold because... Trump is arguing that he is immune to any prosecution for actions he took as president. That is currently at the appeals court in D.C., but everyone expects that to go up to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, the Supreme Court's going to have to decide if that can go ahead, and that might not happen by March, so that timeline could slip. So then if that doesn't happen in March, then you could see maybe one of the state-level cases in New York or Georgia leapfrogging ahead. The New York trial was sort of deferring to the feds, but he could move that back up if the federal case isn't happening. And then in Georgia, the prosecutor has said that she wants the trial to start in the fall and continue into the new year. It'll be really interesting to see whether Trump shifts who he is when he's in court. And I wonder what the previous cases, like he's been in the civil case in New York, and we've seen him a little bit with the Eugene Carroll case. And it seems like he's just getting louder. And, you know, there have been reports of him sort of muttering to himself in ways that the jury can overhear. And that makes the judge in these cases really important. How do you think that will impact whatever happens in all of these cases. Yeah, I mean, he was in the courtroom in New York. He got into it with the judge about how he was talking back too much. Ordinarily, that would be the last thing that anyone would do is antagonize a judge like that. There's an old saying, uh, the most powerful person in America is the judge in his or her own courtroom. Hmm. But Trump is really testing those boundaries um, because... 
you know, what is the judge really going to do to a major party nominee and former president during an election? The tools available to the judge are fines and jail. He has been fined for violating a gag order um, in the New York civil trial by attacking the court staff. Trump is always testing people's boundaries and weaknesses and daring a judge to either sanction him, which becomes the story, or if not, then letting him get away with breaking the rules, which also makes him look powerful. And so it's like an impossible choice. I'm curious how you think other politicians have dealt with Trump's status as a defendant and whether they've dealt with it well. Like in the Republican primary, as you said, it seemed like most of Trump's competitors They weren't really attacking Trump as weak because of his legal situation. Even if they were complaining, his court appearances skewed the race in his favor. Like, what do you make of that? Like, it's interesting because it seems like your competitor has an Achilles heel, but you're not striking it. Well, because because voters didn't want to hear it. The closest they ever came was talking about, like, Nikki Haley will talk about chaos and drama, um, and DeSantis would talk about electability. So that's kind of the proxy of, you know, it's like looking for a way to to acknowledge that this baggage exists, even though it's not his fault. But, you know, we all can see that it's there and maybe it's not ideal. But is that a missed opportunity, too? Because you're not really running against the guy. <laughs> you know, they they all paid for a lot of polling and focus groups and research on what messages they could use to attack Trump. And the findings were almost always that even so much as contrasting positions between Trump and the other candidate hurt the other candidate because the voters viewed it as an implicit attack on Trump. How do you anticipate Joe Biden will handle Trump's status as a defendant? Because if he attacks Trump too hard, he might risk making the case for Trump that he really is the subject of a political witch hunt. And Joe Biden has been sort of (laughs) trying to avoid that. Correct. Um, And I think for that reason, you're not going to see the Biden campaign really saying anything about any of the cases um, and leaving that to other Democrats. But what you do hear from the Biden campaign is an emphasis on the stakes of the election in terms of a choice between democracy and authoritarianism. So emphasizing the statements that Trump has made about how he would wield power in a second term, which include investigating and prosecuting his critics, more forcefully deploying the military domestically, including in response to any protests on Inauguration Day, and also deploying the military for a massive operation of apprehending, detaining, and deporting undocumented immigrants on a scale never seen in this country. Do you think Donald Trump can win from the courtroom? Win what? (laughs) (laughs) The presidency? Well, I mean, I I ask because there uh, can be some space between what works well Uh, as a legal strategy and what plays well politically um, and some tension between what the lawyers want and what the campaigns want, what the campaign wants and what the client wants or the candidate wants. I feel like you and I are talking at this very particular moment. 
like we're in the middle of the primaries, which is when each party's base is at its most powerful. And the Republican base really likes Trump a lot. So right now it seems like campaigning from the courtroom is smart on Trump's part. Do you think this advantage may crumble when it comes to the general election? You know, elections are about margins. And it was an election that was decided by a few tens of thousands of votes in a few states last time. And it's going to be close again. And it only takes a few Republicans who decide they can't stomach it or a few independents who decide um, they don't want it or or stay home. Look, it's a very divided country. It's a two-party system and either party candidate always has a very real possibility of winning. I mean, it's just not really more complicated than that. Isaac Arnsdorf, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm grateful. Thanks for having me. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter over at The Washington Post. His book, which comes out in the spring, is Finish What We Started, the MAGA movement's ground war to end democracy. And that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.